Well, welcome to the South Carolina State Library's podcast, Library Voices SC. I'm Curtis Rogers, Communications Director, and today I'm pleased to have with us in our virtual podcast studio, Natalie Hauf, who is the Deputy Director of Innovation for the Charleston County Public Library System in Charleston, South Carolina. So welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Curtis. Glad you're here and glad I've been able to figure out how to do this from home through Zoom. <laughs> it's making my, it. life, making my <laughs> life a whole lot better. Uh, but anyway, this is part of our little mini series in Library Voices SC podcast on how South Carolina's libraries have been responding during COVID-19. So kind of to start off our conversation, can you tell us a little bit about your library system? Absolutely. So Charleston County Public Library has 17 library branches and a mobile library. And we're in the middle of a building project to expand and update our library branches. We are very fortunate that back in 2014, uh, the voters of Charleston County overwhelmingly um, said yes to investing in their libraries and seeing more of them and the updating of, of all of them. And so um, we have more than 300 employees. We serve a county that spreads miles. I think that that's one of the really think, unique things about Charleston is that, and if you're familiar with Charleston County, we go as, as far as Edisto to McClellanville. That's almost two hours of drive time in between. And during Charleston traffic, it might be even worse. And so we, we really uh, serve this really diverse community and each branch serves communities in different ways. Um, and so we provide services and programs inside our library locations. We have strong community partnerships, outreach programs. And really, lately, we've been really focusing on four core areas that we've been talking a lot about because libraries do so many things, but we really wanted to focus on what is it that we really are, are working hard to prioritize, and that's literacy, educational success, workforce development, and community engagement. So a lot of what we've been doing has really been focusing on, on those things, and a lot of what we do fits into those categories, so it was kind of just organic, um, but, but it helps us tell our story better. Mm-hmm. And I've been to, uh, I think, all of your library branches, um, except for maybe one, because you have a new one, don't you? The last one um, that was completed was St. Paul Hollywood, and it hasn't opened yet. Of course, we were planning the ribbon cutting uh, right before the COVID uh, crisis began. And so we're actually now planning a virtual ribbon cutting for that branch, because when we do start our reopening, we didn't want to not be able to use a library that was completely finished. That seemed, it just didn't seem to make sense. It's finished, let's use it. Um, however, we wanted to make sure that we marked that occasion with a virtual one. And then of course, promising the community a much larger celebration once um, we're all able to be near each other again. Definitely, and I can, I can honestly say that's the first time I've heard of a virtual ribbon cutting. <laughs> We will try it out and see. I will report back. <laughs> right. You'll have to record it and put it on YouTube. <laughs> it's true. Well, it'll be there. <laughs> so um, so your, your library system is a very big library system. We have a lot of big library systems in South Carolina, like Greenville and Richland. And so for Charleston, how has it been for your library to coordinate and respond to COVID-19? You know, that's one of the things that we're really most proud of. Um, and so we jumped into action so quickly. We, I, I can picture myself in the conference room, our executive team and leadership team were all together. And, and, and we started rolling out plans immediately while we were still in the building. Mm -hmm. And so we wanted to make sure that the gap of service to our patrons, which was as minimal as possible, obviously with the closure of our buildings, that meant that a lot of our services had to become virtual. And so we knew we had to shift to virtual programming, teleworking for our staff. And so 
the first thing we thought of was, well, A, is that possible? Do our staff have the tools they need in order to do that from home? So we surveyed every staff member through a survey online. And in one day, I think 99% of the staff responded, which wow. is insane, more than 200 employees responded. And they had let us know um, whether they had A, a computer, or B, internet. And we were able to figure out who didn't have access to those. And then we dispatched our hotspots and our um, Chromebooks that are the libraries to those staff members. So that ensured that all part-time and full-time staff members would all be able to telework in some capacity thanks to the technology. So that was the first and foremost, the biggest thing that we wanted to make sure. And so um, we also did a couple big things that um, I know others in the, in the library world around the state had were grappling with and going back and forth. One of the biggest things we thought about was this digital divide, obviously, that was gonna be created and well, that already existed, but that would be really uh, highlighted during this time and that was access to internet. So we decided, um, our executive director decided to keep the Wi-Fi operational so that patrons could access the Wi-Fi from outside the building. Our Wi-Fi is strong enough that from the parking lots, and we tested this, our, our IT manager, Thomas Wheeler, who's amazing, just made sure that, that the Wi-Fi was going to be accessible um, from every parking lot, from all of our, of our branches. And so we created, we turned it on during certain hours from 10 to 7 so that security could be present at those locations. And since our closure, we have seen a weekly average of 900 people a week accessing the Wi-Fi. You're kidding. Yeah. And so we, and that's, that's not even connections. Like the connections are almost double that people come back, they leave, they come back, but particularly when homework or when um, homeschooling began, we saw really high numbers. Um, and so we knew that that, <laughs> I think we immediately saw that, that it was a good thing that we did that. And we haven't had any issues for the most part, people stay in their vehicles um, and they maintain that distance. So no issues. And, and we're just thrilled that we were able to maintain that access. We also launched a remote telephone center. So that was the other thing. Okay, so now all of our staff members are home. They're working from home. Mm -hmm. So how do we figure out how to answer phone calls? It, staff members can't you know, use their cell phones and call a patron mm -hmm. and then the patron has, so it was all these logistical things. So we just purchased a, several low cost cell phones and um, that didn't have data and just, we organized teams and we used a software that transcribes the uh, phone voicemails to uh, email and essentially the patron calls, they leave a voicemail, it's transcribed and then divided among the team members and uh, our, our uh, associate directors and our chief deputy director did an amazing job of creating teams so that uh, the responsibilities were shifted among different people. And they just responded to calls um, and they've been doing that. We've responded to more than 300 calls and that's everything of course from you know, help with, with library account information, but of course, reference assistance, homework help, workforce development. And so that was also um, really beneficial. And again, addressing the digital divide. And again, mm -hmm. we wanted to make sure that it wasn't just virtual programming, which I'm sure we'll talk about, but also those who didn't have access to internet still receiving that, that essential assistance from the library. Mm -hmm. The other thing that we did in an insane amount of time, and I couldn't believe how quickly our, our associate directors created the procedures for this, um, and it was e-cards. Mm. We launched e-cards because obviously library card, in order to get one, you have to come into the branch, show your ID to, to prove that you're a resident. So we launched temporary e-cards that would allow citizens 
to access all of our e-materials and our e-resources. And so we got more than 1,400 e-card um, recipients. Um, and we're gonna kind of keep using that model until we can be back in person. Um, and then of course, the virtual program. So not having our buildings meant that we weren't gonna have programs in-house, so we wanted to make sure. So we immediately started to check in with the publishers and see, because story time was our, probably our number one concern. And we mm -hmm. wanted to make sure, especially with the school age children, you know, they had their instructions, but then you, know, you have all of the pre-K groups, which most of the daycares in the state had also closed. We wanted to make sure that we ensured that pre-kindergarten readiness with that literacy program. So um, thankfully, so thankfully that the publishers who uh, relaxed their their copyright, and most of them were very um, um, receptive and and for the most part, um, as, you know, using a couple guidelines like saying the name of the publisher, um, we were mm -hmm. able to figure out um, a system like which books do we have to remove the story time after a day, and so we were able to organize that in, in spreadsheets, and then we started to have staff sign up for these story times. And of course, we grabbed as many materials as we could from the libraries before um, we closed up. And then they, it just kind of grew from there. We focused on workforce development, of course, with, with many people being laid off and, and small businesses really going through the strike. We wanted to make sure that we really focused on providing the resources, which we always do, but really kind of enhancing that and highlighting that. And then one of the other interesting things that we did, one of our branches in North Charleston provides a fax service, which is very popular. Well, through Fax Scan 24, our, we were able to expand that so that community members can use the online fax service from any device. Mm -hmm. and so that was, a, that was kind of an interesting um, expansion as well. Mm -hmm. So in a nutshell, uh, you know, it was all about programming and uh, you know, making sure that we ramped up our digital presence, which grew exponentially. Uh, um, our, our reach on Facebook and our, our number of views. Um, we had thousands and thousands of story time views a week. Um, but then also, again, just uh, making sure that we uh, address the digital divide. And did you have any difficulties with the technology or with how you were going to go about delivering that program? Because there are so many avenues. We've got YouTube, we've got Facebook Live, we've got Instagram video. Did you, how did you make a decision how to go about doing those kinds of uh, online programming? So um, we have an amazing communications department and we're, we're really grateful that we are able to have um, employees that their sole focus is on communications, trained professionals in, in marketing. So they came up with a plan and what we decided was that Facebook had, um, well, we cross, cross post a lot of our videos, but mm -hmm. Facebook really became the hub because it had the biggest user base um, and, and it, 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 re it relatively is user friendly. Now the different, the different social media groups start to kind of get um, more specific in demographics, but Facebook does cover a, a large base. So we felt comfortable um, in doing that. Most of the videos were recorded. We do have a few that are live, but mm -hmm. most of them were recorded. We're also grateful that we have a videographer. So they- Yes, in fact, in. That's, that's one really great thing <laughs> that you guys have been such leaders in South Carolina to be able to produce such great videos on you know, explaining what it is you guys do and highlighting your staff. And, and I think it's a really great model model for South Carolina. Thank you for saying that. Well, as a former journalist, I just, storytelling was such a huge part of my life. I, I just, I always saw the benefit that it didn't only have to be for journalism. Storytelling is a 
integral part of an organization's well-being and, and growth. And so when I, when I came to the library, I wanted to make sure that we were able to do that the same way. And so I, I plucked several former journalists <laughs> from, from the local news organizations, <laughs> begrudgingly to their bosses, um, took them away to the library. And so we have a former uh, news anchor from the local NBC station who we hired, Macy Reckner, who's absolutely amazing. And she um, basically started our video program. She started Meet Your Library, which is a, a weekly segment that highlights different parts of the library. And then the Friday Favorite, which is basically a reader's advisory highlighted by a staff member. So we used that and then just enhanced it. So she created a, a bunch of guidelines, like how to, you know, it's funny, there's small things that people don't realize in video. And I think a lot of us now realize that using Zoom, you don't want a window behind you. Like That's that is right. the worst <laughs> thing in the world when you're recording video. Exactly. Um, and so she created all these tips and tricks and provided that to the staff. And, you know, it was kind of interesting because at first I felt like a lot, you know, some certain staff members weren't necessarily comfortable with being on camera, and some of them were like, oh, I'm not quite sure. But Macy was just amazing because she's been able to provide that those tools. You know, some of them would send her the video and say, Do you mind watching this? And she'd say, Yeah, why don't you do this? And why don't you try this? And she was able to provide that feedback until they felt comfortable enough that now we have more than 200 videos that we created that wow. are that virtual programs, and um, that's anything from story time. Then we branched out to teen and adults. We've done book clubs and discussions on Discord. We did, definitely didn't want to lose the engagement that we had at our branches. So a lot of the branch book clubs, we, um, we decided to continue instead using Discord. And then we launched a week-long journaling series. The, the, the idea from that came from the fact that, you know, obviously right now we're in a historical time, mm -hmm. a time that our grandchildren and children's children will talk about. And so, you know, we don't want to lose, especially in the time of social media, we, we don't want to lose chronicling what's happened to us. So we thought, you know, providing a journaling series where we showed people how to do different types of journal, um, journaling would be great. We also launched a weekly Facebook live trivia contest, which has been super popular. Um, believe it or not, our project manager who manages all of our construction projects, Tony Lombardozzi, um, she also, uh, as a, she has staffed as a as a trivia game host around town, she's done that on the side for a couple of years. And so we asked her, "Hey, do you think you want to host trivia online?" And she was super excited, and it's fantastic. We have teams, and they they compete. So that was a nice way of keeping engagement because we didn't want it to only be one sided. So mm -hmm. you know, story time it was one sided because it was it wasn't necessarily live. Some of them are some of them are live, but when we didn't have live opportunities, it really is this one-sided um, type of program, but we wanted to maintain engagement, so we did that in a couple different ways. We also did spring reading challenges. Again, we focused on workforce development. Uh, we started Workforce Wednesday, where we have a workforce blog. Um, we started utilizing our LinkedIn page more often by posting mm -hmm. blog updates. Um, and then we did an Every Child Ready to Read training workshop for parents, so parents could continue doing story time um, themselves. And of course, we did some passive programs. We have a really talented um, artist in our system, Liz Westerfield, and she, um, she illustrated some coloring sheets, coloring sheets featuring our mascot, Albert. And so we posted like a different letter with Albert every week. Um, and then, of course, we had fitness and meditation, genealogy, tech team courses, 
Um, and really a lot of that was using our staff's talents, right? Which is how you do programming in person too, right? You make sure that you, you take the people who know how to sew and hey, do you want to teach a sewing class? But really enhancing that in the virtual world. And then we got some um, national attention from ALA, one of our, um, our uh, Tina Chenoweth from our Baxter Patrick Library, she launched a virtual library in Animal Crossing and that was insanely brilliant. And um, we've had so many people from across the world, from across the country, visit that branch. And so we were really just hoping that our staff kind of embraced it. And my goodness, they did. They embraced it. They were innovative. They thought outside the box because at the end of the day, they were just passionate about, passionate in ensuring that they stayed connected with, with their patrons. Mm -hmm. What was the, uh, tell us a little bit more about the Animal Crossing. What, what was, how did that, I mean, what was it all about? So honestly, I didn't even know what Animal Crossing was. <laughs> and so full disclosure, I did not know it was this video game, but apparently they were telling me this is really popular. And, you know, it started off that, you know, we have these weekly um, innovation meetings with my teams and they said, well, Tina Baxter is going to create this um, Animal Crossing. And I was like, I have no idea what that is um, and they explained it and I was like, okay, well, that sounds cool. Like, why not? Sure. Like, you know, just make sure that she has like the right logos and, you know, you know, us communication folks always want to make sure our branding looks yep, good. Exactly. And then she, I mean, she, she just ran with it, which was great. We wanted her to do that and, and use that creativity and oh my goodness, it just blew up. We have all these visit, people visiting and then patrons were sending emails saying, I just visited the library through Animal Crossing. And ALA uh, caught wind of it and, and wanted to feature it. And then because of that, a lot of libra libraries around the country wanted to start one of their own. And so she's been, um, you know, helping them out and, and figuring out how to get it started. So it was, it, was, it was just really brilliant. It was outside the box thinking in ways to, to reach, you know, and she's a teen librarian. So her thought was, you know, reaching her patrons and her population. But in fact, it ended up, you know, just reaching so many more people. So mm -hmm. it was super interesting. Did you find that when um, you had to, you know, in those first couple of weeks, did you find that you were just really blowing up your events calendar that, you know, you were having to change a lot of things to make them virtual, but were you adding any more things to your normal like calendar of events? So we like just threw away the calendar. <laughs> <laughs> like it wasn't like, Oh, how do we change these into virtual ones? Mm -hmm. um, now some of them organically happen that way. Sure. And and now for summer reading, we're actually, we asked our staff, look at the ones that you plan for in person. Can they be translated virtually? Because they had spent so much time doing those. But honestly, at first it was like, we just threw it out. And because we also wanted them to be relevant, you know? Mm -hmm. and, and, and it's not that, you know, certain things weren't necessarily, like people might still find them interesting, but we wanted to really focus on relevance during mm -hmm. that time. What programming is going to help people during this crisis. Mm -hmm. That's why story time was so important. That's why resume writing was so important and journaling, things that, that, that just related to what was going on right now. And, and that's why I think our fitness and meditation classes did so well too. We have um, Frankie Lee at our Wando branch is um, just amazing at Tai Chi and her Tai Chi class at Wando just gets packed. So we asked her, hey, would you be willing to do this? And she recorded a few and oh my gosh, it was one of the most popular videos on, on our page. And so 
Yeah, it was definitely um, kind of just starting from scratch. But again, staff were just so willing to embrace it because they, you know, I feel like they just wanted to stake that, keep that connection. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it really is amazing in this day and time that it seems like we've had a lot of this technology for so long, but we've never been forced into a position where we had to embrace it. Oh, gosh, I think about that all the time. I feel like had this not happened, it would have been like, and we had tried to do that type of model, it would have been like kicking and screaming mm -hmm. because, well, first off, not everyone is comfortable being recorded, right? Mm -hmm. Not everyone is, is, is equipped to do that. And so I think that it, it, you're right. It forced some people to kind of get out of their comfort zone. But that's why I thought it was important as an organization to provide every tool necessary for that staff member to feel comfortable to do it. At the end mm -hmm. of the day, they may not still want to, and that's totally fine. But I don't. I never wanted to be the reason that they couldn't do it. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so, kind of moving a little bit on to talking about your community partnerships. I know with a really large library system like yours, all of your branches have community partnerships, and your headquarters has a ton of community partnerships. How have those changed, or have you seen any kind of strengthening, or maybe have you lost any? Actually, um, I'm really proud that, you know, that's one of the things that with the programming department, um, having been created um, last year, you know, we, our programming department has, has formed a lot of these partnerships and maintain those partnerships. So they're in constant contact. And that's one of the things from the beginning that we wanted to ensure, let's stay in contact with those partners. We don't want to kind of break that tether. And so um, it, it could have been, it was different levels. So anything as small as, let's say the Charleston pro bono, they were doing programs in person. So instead we reached out to them say, hey, can you still, can we still share your virtual programs on our, on our page? And so, so they continue doing those programs and we share them. Um, and then the Low Country Food Bank, which we have such an amazing relationship with. We started the Charlie Car program with them. We launched it um, last year and it's been such a successful and an and, and amazing program. They, their Charlie Card is shared with us and we would take it to different branches and teach food literacy to all ages. So um, we continue doing food literacy programs um, on, online virtually as our staff members would do those cooking programs. But then we also asked the food bank if that was something that they would like to continue doing their own videos and we could share. Um, also, we, um, we have a community collection that we're launching of items that um, aren't checked out, like people can keep them for free. And those are specifically for those in our vulnerable populations. And so we've been talking to the Low Country Food Bank to see if they would like to distribute some of those items during their, you know, in their pantry as people pick up food that those are those people in need. Um, and then the Charleston County School District, which I would say is um, one of our biggest partnerships, um, that has continued. I, we've spoken to the district throughout this entire process. We've made sure that they have been aware of all of the um, virtual programs to help enhance their classroom learning and also um, in preparation for summer reading. They're one of our, they're our, one of our biggest partners in summer reading. We pre-register the 50,000 students at the school district into our summer reading program. And so we've, we've continued that. We did it again this year. We pre-registered, we trained um, virtually um, their, their employees on our, on our Read Squared um, training 
And so that is continuing. They're gonna be promoting the summer reading program to their students before they wrap up um, their instruction. And we've been doing virtual classroom visits as well. So that partnership has really remained intact. And then of course, part of that partnership also consists of the summer feeding program, which we are going to continue this year um, for the summer. We're so excited that the school district um, is able to continue that program even through this crisis. And so we'll have uh, lunches available for our um, for our, our kids 18 and under during the summer. And so that continued. So absolutely, our partnerships are vital. Um, that's one of the biggest things that I think makes us successful is that we recognize when there are organizations or, or, or people that have a similar mission or where they can supplement something that we can't. And so we've worked hard to form those relationships and definitely during COVID, we've worked hard to maintain them. And that's one thing that, you know, library funders look at. They look to see whether or not any programs are being duplicated or efforts are being duplicated. And that's why those community partnerships are so wonderful to be able to show library funders that, you know, we're working together and we're not doing two separate programs that are in competition. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so moving forward to thinking about reopening, I know a lot of libraries in South Carolina have talked about doing phased reopenings, and that's actually something that we're going to be doing at the State Library. So how are you going to go about the, the reopening process? So we are going uh, about it similarly in the phased approach. And so the first phase has already occurred and that was bringing our staff back into the branches. Mm -hmm. And so about a week ago, um, staff started to come into the branches, um, trickling in. Mm -hmm. And then by the 26th of May, then we were gonna start, I believe that's phase two, we start having uh, more of our staff um, in teams. Of course, we're following all the CDC guidelines. So we're staggering their shifts so that they can prepare for the in-person service. There's a lot to do, there's a lot of holds to fill. Mm -hmm. um, so they are starting to come into the, into the branches to start working. And then the next large phase, which is the one that's public facing, it, public facing is June 8th, which is when we'll start pro providing limited in-person service. And so we decided to move forward with curbside service first. And so we felt like it was um, based on CDC recommendations and based on the fact that there are still you know, growing cases in the state, we thought it was a safe bet. We, we wanted to make sure that we continued providing um, the virtual services. So the virtual programs will continue um, and, and people will be able to contact the, the branches and speak to librarians and staff, but now they'll be able to pick up their holds and they were able to start dropping off their, um, their materials at the book returns uh, earlier in the week. Mm -hmm. And so, It'll definitely be a phased approach, and then we don't know how long curbside will go on. Um, we're, we're, you know, I think that everyone is is having to deal with the um, operations and logistics of this thing on a week by week basis, and just seeing how, what, like, what's the state of the public health crisis at at different times. And so we're going to keep track of our curbside. We're going to look at that data closely. We're going to get feedback from our staff, and then obviously monitor what the state and CDC is recommending and then based on that make decisions of, of how to move forward. And I think one of the difficult things to be thinking about looking 
you know, far ahead of that in-person service when people will actually be coming back into the library is what will the service points look like? Will there be acrylic dividers like you're seeing in some grocery stores? And, and how, how are we dealing with actually being able to have enough of the supplies and cleaning supplies on hands? Um, that's, that's such a challenge. And it's such a conundrum too, because, um, you know, libraries are, our foundations are based on accessibility and feeling welcome, right? Mm -hmm. And, and then here we are figuring out ways to put barriers up now. <laughs> so it feels very unnatural and, and full, dis you know, I always say full disclosure, I am not a librarian, mm -hmm. I'm a former journalist, um, but, um, but I mean, the, the librarians I work with, and of course, our executive director, we, we've all been saying the same thing, you know, it's just, it seems strange, like, it seems so crazy to say like putting partitions up or, or asking for distance. I mean, like we're so inclined to just be there to help and, and welcome everyone and not, and, and, and work hard to make sure that, that no one ever feels excluded. And here we are in this weird state. <laughs> so I think that libraries in particular, more than any other organization or business, really have this cultural shift that they're gonna deal with. Um, and, and that's something that is going to be difficult, not just for the staff, but for the, for the patrons. And so I think it's going to be really, it's going to be an interesting, um, year to see how that develops and, and what it, what, what libraries look like on the other side of this. Mm -hmm. it, 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 and it's hard to envision that because we're all, you know, in this boat together and we're all learning from one another. So I think, you know, really this is the, the communication department's time to shine. That's what I've been telling my communications department at the library because, you know, th everyone seems to be looking to us and we have been probably the busiest we've ever been because even though we're each working from home, we are, you know, super, super busy with making sure that everyone knows what it is they need to know and we may not yet know what that is. <laughs> No, you're totally right too about what you say about communications because, and it's it's interesting because I think a lot of people um, are not used to the way that our structure is formed. You know, um, the communications department and the programming and outreach departments, I oversee those three. And so at first people are like, wait, why is programming with communications? And now more than ever, people get it. <laughs> I mean, we're so grateful because the communications department, they are trained professionals in marketing communication. So they, they make the product look the way it should. And then we have the programming department who are librarians making sure that the quality of that content, you know, meets the standards of, of the library uh, mm -hmm. profession. And so together, it's like this superpower of, <laughs> of superheroes <laughs> That I just I love them because they they just work so well together and I think it was like kind of unorthodox and, and just kind of untraditional way of looking at how to put programming together for a library but it's just worked so well so you know we went from meeting you know separately to now it's this innovation department meets weekly and everyone is involved and our programming department is is coming up with ideas for programs and they're in, you know, encouraging the staff to embrace their ideas and, and record programs and then our communications department makes sure it's polished and, and meets the standards that so that at the end of the day when the when the patron gets that program, I mean, it is really truly quality work. And so um, I would encourage every library 
if by now they have not figured out how important communications is, and I know that FTEs are hard to come, full-time positions are hard to come by right now, but if you do not have someone managing your communications, please figure it out. If you have an, you know, an empty full-time position, hire someone and hire a professional. I love librarians. I love library staff. And sometimes they, they're forced to have to wear many hats. And sometimes there's no budget for a professional. But communications professionals, they, that, that's what they're trained in. So the same way I would, I would never dare to give a reader's advisory <laughs> or, or try to answer a reference question. <laughs> You know, because I, I appreciate the importance of that degree, the importance of that profession of, of being a librarian. So I feel like we need to look at communications the same way and videography and graphic design and all of those professions in the same way. And, and that's when you see that quality increase. And mm -hmm. so exactly. Um, I've, I've definitely seen that. I've been at the South Carolina State Library for 26 years. And, you know, being the communications director, now I'm finally in a position where I have a public information coordinator. I have a web developer. I have a graphic designer. And we're able to do so much more and so much better. And like you said, yeah, it's difficult if you don't have the funds or the the FTEs to be able to have that but at least make sure that it's one person's even part of their job to be coordinating that message even if you have a very small library um, that's a part of one person's job to communicate that message and we think it's really going to change the way the COVID crisis is really going to change the way libraries operate not just on the on the in-person side how we discussed earlier but also a lot of things that we've now offered it's going to be hard to take that away. And quite frankly, we shouldn't. Why? If, if there is a, a group of people who like to be served in this fashion, then why take that away? Mm -hmm. So we, we intend to continue virtual programming for as long as we can um, and providing those virtual uh, options. And so mm -hmm. I think it'll be interesting to see how that how, how the libraries adapt in that way mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and in some ways it's a little bit easier you don't have to find a parking space <laughs> <laughs> exactly <laughs> uh, well uh, i want to encourage folks to visit your website and that's ccpl.org and we have a link to that in our podcasting page and so i really do appreciate your time so thank you so much for being with us today thanks again for having me i loved it and thank you to our listeners. You can find Library Voices SC on Podbean, Stitcher, and TuneIn Radio, or add us on your favorite podcast app. Our podcast website address is librarievoices.podbean.com. We also love hearing from our listeners, so please send us your comments and suggestions for future topics. Library Voices SC is the official podcast of the South Carolina State Library. So until next time, this is Curtis Rogers. Thanks for listening.